Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon. This is Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart. Welcome. Today, starting our 30th year together, Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning and not Valentine's, although we could do that too. You, do, you accomplish participation here by calling or texting 512-836-0590. Also, you may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there and listen later on to today's or previous broadcasts. You can also go to SoundCloud, a free app, and listen to lots of previous programs as well. And this Thursday, after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. I always take today's calls first, and then today's texts, and then any previous texts that I have not either answered or have not fully answered. It's a great idea to call or text now. We have all of our lines available. No outstanding texts. 512-836-0590. If you're a regular listener, and I hope you are, You know, the questions I hate the most are the ones around Social Security, because I'm clearly not a Social Security expert, and I find it very confusing. However, I did have a call last week from a person who I believe was planning on taking Social Security at age 62, and was also talking about his income. And so I'm going to read to you, because I don't want to make a mistake and mess this up. So if you take Social Security before your full retirement age, and your full retirement age is a function of the year in which you were born. Uh, I, for a lot of people listening, it's probably somewhere between 66 and 68 years of age. So if you take your Social Security at 62 rather than waiting until full retirement age, and if you, it says here that under full retirement age, $1 is withheld as your Social Security benefit is reduced by $1 for every $2 above the limit of $22,320. So everything above $22,320 for the year, every $2 above that, it reduces your Social Security benefit by $1. Whereas if you wait till full retirement age or till age 70, there is no reduction in your Social Security benefit. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. We just got a text in here. Hi, Carl. Thank you for the wonderful show. You're welcome. With the technology dominance in the S&P 500, what percentage of the index is now considered growth? Am I overanalyzing the index? You're not overanalyzing the index. I think what people um, have to understand about market capitalization-weighted indexes like the S&P 500 is that every day, frankly, every I presume every moment during the trading day, the value of the index is determined by the, num- the price of any company's stock multiplied by the times of share uh, by the number of shares outstanding so what happens is when you have a sustained move upward in a stock its value grows 
its market capitalization grows, and its relative percentage weighting in the index grows as well. So when you own the S&P 500 index, which a lot of people do, a lot of people feel it's a terrific idea, then what you're going to get is the moves in companies that gain the most in market capitalization. And we've had, to your question, this remarkable move in technology stocks, and specifically what uh, a gentleman named Hartnett at Bank of America called the Magnificent Seven, and and it's names you would know like Microsoft and NVIDIA, I think Amazon, Apple, uh, I believe Tesla uh, are is are part of those. I, I think Alphabet, Google would be another one. And so they do dominate. Uh, I'm not sure what the percentage of the index is now, uh, but it's really quite high. So is it now considered a growth? I would have to say yes. I would have to say yes. It's a gro- it is a growth index. I think the uh, easiest way uh, to think about this uh, is... Uh, that what happened to the NASDAQ uh, in, from 1995 through the first quarter of 2000. Uh, we had this wonderful market where the S&P was up over 20% per year, but the NASDAQ was even up more because it had a heavier weighting initially of these technology stocks. So as they led the market, the NASDAQ outperformed the S&P 500 just like last year when the NASDAQ was up, as I recall, over 40%. Now, it was down over 30% the previous year, but those technology stocks led it. So the NASDAQ, you could argue, is even more of a growth stock-type uh, index. And so the, the what you have to decide as an investor is you just simply take what the market will give you. You can buy an S&P 500 ETF and be done with it, or you can build something around that in terms of value, you have to be comfortable with not making the performance of the S&P 500. I always think back to when that bubble burst in the first quarter of 2000, and I remember reading that it took 15 years, which is a really long time, for the NASDAQ to come back to the level it was in the first quarter of 2000. So, yes, with the technology dominance in the S&P 500, uh, it is, I would have to say, a growth index. Uh, and that's just the way that that index works. Now, there are other ways to do that. There are ETFs, for example. It's my understanding that will take an equal weighting. In other words, they won't give NVIDIA a higher weighting than another stock in the index. You get you. That's perfectly fine to do. Uh, and what would presumably happen, I don't know this, is when the leading group, let's just say they're technology stocks, when the leading group collapses, one would presume that the capitalization weighted index would do worse than the equally weighted index because those the NVIDIAs and, and, and the Googles and et cetera and Metas of the world would have less of a downward impact, just like they had more of an upward surge as well. Interesting question. Time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. It's a great time to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM 
Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I'm Carl Stewart. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Luckily, I had the opportunity over that very brief uh, break to look this up. I'm just reading from uh, a piece, a document I got this week. The technology sector's waiting in the Standard & Poor 500 ticked above 30% on January 24th for the first time since September the 26th of 2000. Think of that. On the same day last week, the utilities sector saw its weighting in the Standard & Poor 500 drop to a multi-decade low of 2.17%. Since 1990, see that would be 34 years, the only time the utility sector's weighting dipped below that level was in late March 2000 at the peak of the dot-com bubble. So that does show that what we were talking about, the extreme impact that technology has. And there's one way of thinking about investing that uh, is called contrarian, uh, and that is uh, to take the opposite side of the popular trade. That would put somebody looking at things like utilities because they are so heavily out of favor. I'm not, obviously, if you listen regularly, you know I don't make those kinds of recommendations. I am just saying, though, that industries go and go and go until they don't, and a 30% weighting, if you don't own those stocks, then you're not going to participate as well. So when you stop and think about selecting stock mutual funds, if you want the index performance, then you should buy an exchange-traded fund. It's dirt cheap, and it's tax-efficient. But if you're going to buy an actively managed fund, then you're either going to want a fund where the manager really goes all in for whatever's working, and that would be now technology, or leans against that. I remember in, I believe it was 2021, there was a fund, my recollection, the name of it was the Alger Small Cap Focus, and the manager of that was either the top one or top two or three performing mutual fund portfolio managers that year and naturally got lots of publicity and touted in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she accomplished that not because she was taking risk in the sense of buying poor quality companies, but rather what she was doing was her fundamental analysis and her strategy led her to overweight overweight biotechnology companies and the market loved biotechnology companies that year and so her performance was just terrific but the other side of that is she's lagged for the next two years perhaps the best uh, the kind of the poster person for that with Kathy Wood at ARK ARK where they look into the future make predictions about what's going to dominate, whether that's artificial intelligence or electrical vehicles or biotechnology, and then own those companies that they believe uh, will prosper in that environment. And so you get huge swings in returns. 
And again, I'm not suggesting that that's a bad thing. I am suggesting that if you just look at, say, three, five-year returns and you don't understand the strategy, then you're probably better off just sticking passively with an S&P 500 or a NASDAQ or International Diversified Fund. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We have another 40 minutes of me bloviating unless you call or text 512-836-0590. That did it. Jim, you're on the air. How may I help? Hey, Carl. How are Hi. you? Great show. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, Carl, I'm really concerned with the government being so heavily in debt. Yes. I'm in my early 70s, retired. I got substantial cash. Yes. Would it make sense to just convert all that cash to gold, silver, hard assets, like maybe farmland or something like that? Because, you know, it's just not going to end. They keep getting further and further debts into trillions of dollars. And yes. There's, there's no way they're going to pay for that. That's right. Uh, well, first of all, no one can argue with the with your concern of the trillions of dollars of government debt. And we now know that it really doesn't matter whether the Republicans are in charge or the Democrats are in charge. Uh, we're going to keep piling up the debt. So are, should we all be concerned? The answer is obviously yes. The tricky part is what to do about that. For example, silver has been generally too closely linked to the economy to be a good hedge because so much of it is used in manufacturing. So I would stay, I would stay away from that. Farmland uh, it can, can go through really long periods of just wonderful performance, followed by terrible performance. There are a couple of factors that will be obvious to you about farmland. The good news is it's limit like gold it's limited they don't make the, the increase in global gold production per year is something around 2%. There's not going to be more far, farmland but there the two real factors are crop prices right because corn at one price is profitable and at another price is not and the second is interest rates because there's a lot of debt, lot of debt associated with farmland. A lot of farmland, it, just like in, like any other kind of real estate, has debt associated with it. So, in a period of higher interest rates, it can it can make farmland less attractive. Now, there was a period of time back in the late 70s and early 80s when we had runaway inflation. And bonds did very badly, and stocks did very badly, and the two things that really did well were oil and gas, because we'd had the uh, embargo, and the world believed we didn't have control of our own energy supply, and the second were commodities. And so the commodities were produced where? On the farm. So farmland was skyrocketing. I happen to remember, because I happened to live there in the uh, late, uh, late 70s, before uh, 45 years ago I moved to central Texas, and there was farmland that, and remember this is, before, this is old numbers, that was priced at, say, $3,000 an acre, but then it collapsed. And it, when I say it collapsed, it went back to $1,000 an acre. 
Now today it might be ten thousand dollars an acre. So you're so it's it's yeah. not necessarily a store of value in my experience any more than energy is because it's so tied to supply and demand and also to interest rates. Now let's let's go to uh, precious metals. Uh, clearly, silver, in my view, is not the place to be. Industrial metals like copper are probably not the place to be because they're, they're subject to the global supply and demand. But speaking of gold, very interesting about gold. For many, many years, I was very skeptical of gold because so many people who were recommending it seemed to me to be really extreme. But I would tell you that having some gold in, in, in your portfolio, but not all of it, does that make sense? It does. Now, let's talk yeah. about... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. But, and so if you, if you assume that, because gold historically is perceived as a store of value, the people who own gold are primarily the central banks, which have been buying more, and individuals, whether that demand uh, is just for storage or in many countries, it's been a way when, in, when you have unstable governments, it's you wear the gold around your, around your wrist or around your neck or whatever. And, and as I said, supply uh, does, not, does not grow. Having said that, gold peaked in 1980 at $800 an ounce. And today, at $2,000 an ounce, if you'd have bought it in 1980 at 800 and adjusted it for inflation, 44 years later, you're still underwater. You still have a loss. Wow. Yeah. It's got wow. to be above 2,200 before you start to have a profit. So I'm not opposed to wow. it, but I wouldn't overweight it. Now, let's finish this by talking about how would you own gold. For the longest time, if you either own the bullion or you own the coins, or in the financial markets, you own the gold mining stocks, I would argue that all three of those have their drawbacks. The bullion is an illiquid asset, and you have to, you have to store it. The coins are expensive because you're not just paying for the gold. You're paying for the cost to mint the coins. And then the transaction costs can be steep because you pay a, a, a coin broker to buy it and you pay a coin broker to sell it. The mining stocks, when gold is rising, have been very good performers, but they tend to go up more when gold is rising and down more when gold is falling. The other challenge is gold mining stocks are not all the same. Because the cost of production, it's a little bit like farmland. You can get a lot more bushels of corn or soybeans from certain parts of Illinois and Iowa than other parts. And so some gold mining companies have higher costs of production than others. So it's really complicated. But years ago, and I don't know how many, but several years ago, when exchange-traded funds and exchange-traded trusts started to become available, then two, particularly two big companies, uh, BlackRock through their iShares, which is the largest asset manager in the world, and, and State Street Bank through their spiders, 
own the gold. I mean, you can go and look at it on their website. They own the gold. They have it in vaults. But you can buy and sell because the price of their exchange-traded fund is the price of gold. So last year, for example, gold was up, I think, 6% and change. This year, it's down to about 1.5%. And if you own that as part a part of your plan, and if it turns out that rising government debt results in, say, a falling dollar, uh, then gold, based on history, would be a one way to hedge against that. But owning the bullion, owning the coins, and owning the mining stocks, in my view, would be less attractive than owning the exchange-traded fund. The two symbols are IAU and GLD. I'm not recommending because I don't ever do that. My lawyers won't let me. But I feel more comfortable about gold than the other ideas. Okay? Yeah. Okay. All right, Carl. I really appreciate it. I love your show. You do always a great, great job, buddy. Okay. You bet. Thanks for calling. Time for us to take a break. Good time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. Stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here until 5 this afternoon. And when you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com. Or go there, download previous podcasts and broadcasts, and you can listen on SoundCloud, a free app for previous Money Talk broadcasts. And this Thursday, after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's a great idea to call or text. We have all of our lines available and no incoming texts, 512-836-0590. I This is on the edge, but I just have to say that the ad that said the Fed has announced interest rate cuts is inaccurate. They have not announced interest rate cuts, and we may actually get into that a little bit later in the broadcast. 512-836-0590. Marianne, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. Hi. Um, I mentioned I your name. You. I mentioned your name last week. <laughs> I found that out. Actually, I had it on, and we were do- moving some things, and I didn't get to reply back. But thank you so much. That was. Uh, I I just loved hearing that uh, uh, you and I are um, very interested in the same thing. Yes. Being people being yes. much more more paying much more attention yes. to their finances exactly. and that they can do more exactly um that's right so uh i, I appreciated being uh being referred to as <laughs> you're a caller welcome. there you're welcome you're welcome how may i help today marianne oh uh just uh, that was the main thing just okay. to thank you and uh, <laughs> uh so appreciate your uh, program well, and today's is uh, as interesting as anyone we've had covering gold and yeah, uh, yeah. a number of yeah. uh, places we might uh, invest yeah, so uh, thank you again for okay. your uh, time on air and helping educate uh, the greater public of us there you're very welcome thanks for calling i must say thank you call by the way 512-836-0590 this is 
this is fun for me. I think you can tell that. I've had friends who've had radio broadcasts around the country, and they stopped doing them. And I said, why? And they said, well, because it took time out of our weekend, and you know, it took you had to get prepared. And I, I just, and I get it, but I, I enjoy this, and I, I, I believe that you do as well. Five one two eight three six zero five ninety. Here comes a text. Let's just see if we can get this. All right. Hi, Carl. I am working on increasing my asset allocation in international stocks. Good for you. I am currently only at 15% and heading to 25%. My plan next week is to sell some of my S&P 500 index and then buy VXUS the same day. Does this make sense? So, you're obviously a person who follows your investments and is actively involved. Let me let me kind of explain the, what you're talking about to everybody else. So one of the characteristics of the global equity market, and it's been this way for quite some time, is that U.S. stocks have outperformed international stocks. Uh, so if you were to just look at the numbers, the valuation numbers, and say, okay, uh, are U.S. companies in aggregate, because obviously we're talking about a, a larger group, the index, are they equally expensive or inexpensive when compared to the broad swath of international stocks? And the answer is that U.S. stocks are more expensive. Now, you, there are some fundamental reasons for that. One is that coming out of the COVID pandemic, that the U.S. has done better, as I'm talking about from an economic standpoint, than has Europe and certainly China. They've had big problems and continue to have big problems. And so it's not terribly surprising that global capital would flow into the U.S. However, having said that, you may, re- if you were listening to the first uh, half of our today's show, that Putting all your money on what's winning at the current time is not necessarily, over longer periods of time, a winning strategy. Over 50% of the world's public companies are headquartered outside the United States. Now, they may have, because we're the world's largest economy, they may have big business here, uh, like uh, Nestle's. I'm just picking one out, out of the thin air. But they're still domiciled elsewhere and in a different currency. And my view, having been around this for 45 years, is that I don't want to bet this the U.S. is going to always do better or the international is always going to do better. So I like to have exposure both domestically and foreign. And I think a 75-25% split between U.S. equities and foreign equities seem perfectly reasonable to me. Now, when I say foreign equities... I'm frankly not specifically talking about what we call emerging markets, not because I think emerging markets are somehow bad. I've just learned the hard way that they tend to be more volatile, and when investors globally decide to de-risk their portfolios because of a pandemic or a global financial crisis, you're going to be in much worse trouble with emerging markets than developed markets. So what you're considering is buying as an exchange-traded fund called the Vanguard International VXUS. And if you believe in exchange-traded funds and passive investing, and I think 
I do, I don't exclusively believe in that, but I do, then I think doing that the same day is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And I would have no problem doing that if I were in your shoes. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Keith, you're on the air. How may I help? Keith, you're on the air. How may I help? I cannot hear. Take care of your phone for you. Okay, there. Would you start over again, Keith? I didn't hear you beginning your question. Yes, sir. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Please proceed. Okay. I've got two questions. The first is, what do you think of the computer programs that basically manage your your funds for you, uh, financial engines, these sure. kind of things? Sure. And my second question is, I'm about three, maybe four years out from ready to retire. Yes. I'm still in the market. Yes. Should I start looking for safe havens to put my money aside? Sure. Sure. Great. Two really good questions. So what Keith's talking about is that you can put your money with the service. Uh, you will fill out a form as to what your goals and objectives are, and the service will put you into one of their model portfolios uh, and will and will manage it between traditionally between stock and bond funds frequently exchange-traded funds because they're tax-efficient and they're very inexpensive. Um, and my view on that is for a person who, who either doesn't want to pay an advisor or doesn't want to do it himself, they're a lot better than just sitting in cash. They're going to use historical data. They're going to rebalance the portfolio so that you're – from from their view, you're not overweighted in one in in domestic or foreign stocks or or bonds or whatever the case is. So I'm okay with it. I, I'm not a, a terribly big fan of it, but it's a little bit like these target date funds and life strategy funds are a heck of a lot better than than doing nothing. So I'm okay with it. Now let's talk about I think a really important question in this. Okay, if I'm two or three years from retirement. What do I do about my mix, my asset allocation? And I think this is a huge issue uh, in our country. And it starts from the fact that uh, people who have money to invest, by and large, have access to health care. And when they retire, they'll have, if they're 65 or older, they'll have access to Medicare. And uh, they have capital, they have money, uh, and probably are going to have a long life expectancy. Remember, life expectancy is for our entire population. It's for people who, are, who have bad habits, it's for people who smoke, it's for people who are obese, it's for people who don't have access to health care and end up in the emergency room when they're really sick. And that's probably not you. And so you have to plan on a long, long, it's what's called longevity versus life expectancy. So if I'm, if you're 62 years old, I'm just making this up, and you want to retire when you're 65, you need to think about the fact that unless you have a life-shortening chronic disease, you have to prepare to be around for a long time. And if you're going to be around for a long time, from an investment standpoint, you have to ask yourself, what's the risk? 
The risk is not that your that your stock fund portfolio goes down because periodically it will. We both know that. The risk is that the cost of living will continue to go up and that if you own, only have Social Security income or only pension income or only bond interest, that that's, those streams of income will not keep up with the rising cost of living. And when you think about investing in the stock market, what you're really investing in are companies. And you're investing in companies, and based on history, over time, certainly not every year, over time, U.S. companies grow their profits, which consequently cause them to grow in value. So what I'm concerned about for you and for many people approaching retirement and in retirement is they put all of their money in CDs or all of their money in, in government bonds or all of their money in corporate bonds or taxes and municipal bonds. And those investments, again, based on history, can deliver, after inflation, a negative return. So if you're two or three years from retirement and you are healthy for your age bracket and you don't have you know, a life-shortening uh, disease, I would tell you that you, ought to, that, you, that you ought to have, in my opinion, more than 50% of your money in global stocks, in global equities, because, again, I keep saying this because it's all I have to go on. Based on history, over the rest of your life, that's going to provide you inflation protection, and those other investments will not. So that's my view. Time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. It's a great time to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart. And you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. We've got another 13 minutes here together. So if you've been thinking of calling or texting, now would be a terrific time to do that at 512-836-0590. In preparation for today's broadcast, and for every broadcast, I always do a lot of reading, and I came across this interesting statistic. It says government interest payments have doubled since 2021. In 2021, the U.S. government interest payments were around $350 billion. And because of the increase in interest rates and debt levels, annualized debt serving costs, debt servicing costs, are now above $700 billion. And we talk about the government debt, and we had a conversation about that earlier today. But this impact on interest rates of interest rates is a is a you can't overstate how big a deal that is the other thing that's happening and will be happening this year is if you think about it the government borrows money because tax revenues do not equal what we spend and they borrow money by selling bonds actually to be technically correct they sell bill they sell bills notes and bonds and guess what those bonds mature and so now they have to pay the people who bought those bonds. And how do they do that? By issuing more bonds, just like you would refinance your mortgage. Well, 
what do they have to pay? They have to pay whatever the world says, we're not going to buy your your bonds unless we get this interest rate. So the longer-term consequences of having this debt mature as the debt grows is it could put upward pressure on interest rates, even though the Federal Reserve, which controls short-term interest rates, could put downward pressure, lowering the Fed funds rate. It doesn't mean that the 5 or the 10 or the 20-year Treasury can be brought down because the world's going to decide what interest rate they're willing to accept for our government debt. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Alan, you're on the air. How may I help? Hey, Carl. Uh, kind of a two-pronged question. Sure. First, I realize you're not a tax guy, but uh, <laughs> it's a it's a real estate inheritance. Yeah. Uh, mom died about a month ago. The property will be sold in about a month, so uh-huh. only my property for about 60 days so my understanding is i there shouldn't be a long-term capital gain or a short-term capital gain because property shouldn't have changed certainly shouldn't have changed value much no 60 days no so did your mom live is there a personal residence yes okay so you're right um the market value at the time had she sold it during her lifetime uh as a single person the first $250,000 of gain would not be subject to tax. But because she passed away owning the home, you've inherited the asset, and your cost basis is not what she paid for the house. Your cost basis is the value at the time of her death. Now, if it were a mutual fund portfolio, it would be easy to, to find out what that value was. Obviously, you cannot do that. But if it's your intention to sell the property, you're absolutely right. The, the difference in the price in a few months is likely to be negligible. You probably ought to talk to a tax professional about this, but, you're, right. you're, but your thinking is valid. Any of us who ever inherit a, what we call a capital asset – a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, real estate, and it's not in an IRA that the, the decedent owned it outright in his or her own name. Our cost basis, the, the fancy term is called step up in basis. Our cost basis is, it could be stepped down, but in this case, stepped up in cost to to reflect the market value at the time of her death. So no, you should not have any tax liability in my opinion. Okay, so the second part of the question then is, since I'm already fairly well set in my retirement, uh, bumping up against a million dollars, and I don't own any gold, and should I be looking at physical gold, gold bond funds, gold stock funds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, how old a man are you? 67. Okay, and uh, are you working or retired? Uh, semi-retired. Okay. And is, are your source, what are your sources of income? Is it social security and work or what are your sources? Yes, of income? exactly right. Social security and work. Okay. Do you, um, take, so is your social, I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I need to under, this is why I'm glad you call instead of sending me a text right now is your social security income 
plus your part-time work income sufficient for you to live on? Absolutely. Do you have any liabilities, auto debt, credit card debt, or real estate debt? No. Okay. All right. So you're right. You're in good situation because a million dollars, and, and I know this just a lot of our listeners are going to sound silly, but a million dollars isn't what it used to be. <laughs> and no, sir, it's not. You know, and if you, and so I would say this because you are debt free, uh, when you stop working, I think both of us assume you're going to want to tap into that million dollars to offset the income that's no longer there. So now you're going to have two streams of income. You're going to have social security and withdrawals from the million dollars. Now, because you're 67, unless how old, I'm just curious, how old a person was your mother when she passed away? My mother was 84, but my father died when he was 69. Okay. Well, there you have it. So, um, I would say you should still plan for a long life. Uh, I'm perfectly glad, happy that you should own some gold, but I don't think you should overweight it. I think you need to have something that will have the potential to grow over time because Social Security, you can't call them up three years from now and say, you know, I'm a little short here. Would you increase my monthly benefit? So the Social Security benefit is going to be whatever it is. You don't have control over that. Good news is you can't outlive it. But this pool of capital, this million dollars, has to keep up with the cost of living, and that will not occur uh, if you leave it in the bank. Based on history, even though short-term interest rates are relatively high now, they won't stay high. And so you want to put some money in. It's fine with me to put some money in gold, and I'm going to tell you how to do that. But you also need, as I was saying earlier in the broadcast, People get the stock market mixed up with what what the stock market is. The stock market is a participation in the growth of U.S. companies. And if there's been one bet that's been the correct bet over the history, it over our history, it's betting on American ingenuity, it's betting on American productivity, and it's betting on corporate profitability. And so you want to have some participation in that. You either going to do this on your own, or you're going to hire somebody to help you. That's your business, but you're going to want to have exposure to the stock market. Now, having said that, uh, when you own gold, and I'm perfectly comfortable with you having five, six, seven percent of that million dollars in gold, I would not own the bullion, I would not own the coins, and I would not own the mining stocks. You can own access to gold by owning an exchange-traded fund that's cheap to own, like 0.25% per year, and it actually owns the gold. You can, you can look, I would recommend that you look at two websites, one by BlackRock and one by State Street. They both have what are called gold exchange-traded funds. BlackRock symbol is IAU, and uh, the other symbol is GLD, and you can go in and the, the, you can, I've done this, you can actually see the pictures of the gold, having it in that format where you have daily liquidity and you will participate, good and bad, in the price of gold. So I'm okay with you having some gold, just don't overweight it because gold is a store of value and in very bad times it has held value. And in some inflationary times, it has also kept up with value, with, with value. And in periods of, of weakness in our currency, which we don't have now, 
it also has held value. So having a modest position based on my thinking today, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But do not get too conservative with your asset allocation as a 67-year-old because you're going to want to take down twenty, thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars maybe from that million. You need to keep it growing because if you assume a two or three percent inflation rate and you take out two or three percent, you've got to see that portfolio growing at more than three or four percent. That's what I would do if I were you. I appreciate the information, Carl. You did good. <laughs> okay, good luck. You're listening to Thanks, Money Carl. Talk on News Radio KLBJ. So Ah, this has been a lot of fun this afternoon. I want to thank you for listening. I'm going to bail out of here. We usually go to to 59 minutes after the hour, but I'm not going to bloviate for one minute since it's 58 minutes after the hour. I want to thank Kyle and Garrett for producing today. I want to thank you for listening to the first broadcast of our 30th year of Money Talk. Join me next week after the news at 4. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 